Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker, an online advertising network for book nerds, culture vultures, movie people, art people, just people who like culture, but especially books. If you want to advertise and reach those people on the web, go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a huge network of great culture sites like the Nervous Breakdown, the Paris Review, the Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, Electric Literature, the list goes on. You can advertise on the entire network at once, or you can pick the sites you want and do it piecemeal. It's very user-friendly. Check it out, litbreaker.com. It's an online advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is partially the product of confusion. This is neither of us having anything better to do. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm sitting here. I'm in a chair. I'm in a garage. I'm feeling good. How are you feeling? My guest today is Mark DeSilva. His debut novel is called Square Wave. It's available now from $2 Radio. Mark DeSilva and I will be in conversation in just a minute. I don't have much to say. It's been uh, busy. Things have ratcheted up in my life. Family stuff. I'm not getting back into it. I'm not going to talk about it. Just saying, like, I've got a lot going on. I feel busy. I feel sleepless. I haven't been eating a lot. I'm stressed. It's okay. It's just a phase. Nothing's permanent. Just going through uh, life. Trying to figure everything out. Uh... I was just at the coffee shop this afternoon, uh, having an uh, exchange with my barista, 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 nice young gentleman with a ponytail, originally from Colorado. We've gotten to know each other. He came in and he was like, well, what can I get you? And I was like, oh, you know, it's hard to say. I'm trying to decide what I want to do to myself. And he's like, yeah, I, I get it, man. He's like, it's like, you know, you get to the afternoon, it's like two or three in the afternoon and uh, you're contemplating what to get. And it's like, do you want to get a coffee, you know, like some really strong coffee that's going to leave you feeling uh, edgy and rattled? Or do you want to go with something gentler? Like, at, well, you know, you have to make a decision at, at a certain point in your day. Like, how, you know, how do you want to make things go for the remainder? He's a very nice guy. 
He's a gentle soul with a ponytail. And he looked at me and he's like, so, you know, what do you want, man? And I was like, uh, I think I want to get edgy and rattled. <laughs> I think I'm going to go for clammy hands and a heart murmur. And, and that is the state in which I am in right now. And, and you know what? I don't, do I sound that uh, edgy and rattled? Do I? Maybe I do. Caffeine, I don't feel like caffeine has a huge effect on me. It never has. I can go to sleep after a coffee, I think. You ever have one of those friends who's like, you know, in your youth who gets really into amphetamines, like gets into cocaine, but yet is like caffeine-averse? I've had buddies like that. It's like a, a vegan cigarette smoker. It's that kind of thing. Do a bunch of do a bunch of cocaine, but then be like, no, 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 I don't want to drink coffee. Hey, everybody! If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called "Truth Is the Arrow, Mercy Is the Bow." a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Mark De Silva. His debut novel, Square Wave, is out there now from $2 Radio, uh, one of the finer independent presses in this country. I had a really good time talking with Mark. He's a very well-educated man. He is uh, way smarter than I am. I'm just going to put that out there, and I think you guys are going to enjoy hearing from him. It's a pleasure to catch him here at the dawn uh, of what is sure to be a fine literary career. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mark De Silva. <laughs> <laughs> Are you like? I mean, what is it? Good. Cambridge uh, PhD. Cambridge PhD, right? Um, PhD in, in what? In philosophy. Okay, see, that seems really intelligent to me. Uh, it, seems, <laughs> it seems like deep intelligence. Uh, it took me many years to complete, so maybe I'm not quite quite at the level you think. You lived in uh, England. I did live in England for around a decade, almost, off and on, working on the dissertation. Sometimes just living. What were you doing? Just you just lived there. What do you do when you live in uh, Cambridge? For... Uh, I, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time sort of ambivalent, frankly, during the course of during the dissertation. I mean, maybe, as philosophy PhDs as, are wont to do. I think it was sort of expected. It's not really that surprising, but uh, um, you know, I started it, uh, did pretty well with the, the masters, then entered the PhD, but then sort of had a feeling of like, um, is this really the kind of sort of the conference circuit that you're expected to follow and the whole is that what academic you, routine. I, I was going to say, what are you yeah. supposed to do with a PhD? I mean, a PhD in philosophy in yeah. Cambridge sounds awesome, but what do you do with that? I, it's, I mean, I think it's people who in that program were pretty much strictly headed for, 
professorial sort of positions, academic positions. And I, I think I felt that way in college, that I, that's what I was going to do. But um, within a couple of years, I got the feeling that, oh, this is not really, these are not, this is not my milieu in some way. Why um, not? Uh, <laughs> it's, they, they're very sort of, you know, I, I don't know. I, I guess I went into philosophy thinking this is the opposite of a career. In a way, it was a rejection of, sort of the career track of being... So is, so is podcasting, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> I see that, I see that. Um, <laughs> and, and then to, I discovered, like, basically I was trying to not be a lawyer or a doctor or one of these other things, try to do something artistic or intellectual. But then I found pretty quickly that these people were sort of treating it almost... Some of these guys are brilliant, but it was almost like they could have been a doctor and they decided, let me do this. It was another profession. It's very sort of sanitized and very... I think I had certain rom romantic notions of what philosophy might be like. And I think th those the kind of philosophy departments I was thinking of had died maybe 40 years ago. I mean, it's just not like that anymore. It's very, uh, very sort of clinical. Okay. Just a lot of dry papers that you write with no real style. These guys are, a lot of them are very sort of picket fence kind of, I don't know. It just wasn't what I was looking for. I was thinking something more debauched, more wild, more reckless in some ways. And it just wasn't that, you know? Okay. So my, my understanding of philosophy <laughs> is pretty rudimentary. I read, yeah. I like, I was, I, I, knowing this uh, a couple of years ago, I read a book by a French uh, philosophy God, I'm forgetting his name. I think his book is called like a brief history of philosophy. It was like it was like philosophy for idiots. Okay, but it gave like an overview. Who you don't remember the writer? No, no. okay, I, yeah. I could Google it. But okay, it's not really important. The point that I'm, I mean, yeah, no disrespect, but the <laughs> point that I'm trying to make is that it gave like a brief overview of the various schools of thought, mm -hmm. major movements in philosophy. Yeah, is there one? Uh, that resonated for you in particular? Like, do you feel a certain affinity for a school of philosophy or I, a school of thought? I, I think I, I do and I did, and it, it's probably the same one. Um, and that's partly why I went to uh, to Cambridge in particular, is that uh, that was the school of Wittgenstein. And that was uh, the sort of the foundation of what has come to be called, and I suppose was called then analytic philosophy, you know, sort of Anglo-American kind of tradition as opposed to the French tradition or the German tradition of, you know, Derrida and Foucault and that sort of thing. I think I was entranced by sort of questions of logic and language um, uh, taken up in a pretty rigorous way. Like the French have a way of doing philosophy that maybe is a bit more playful, uh, heavily sort of metaphor-driven. And uh, I did like sort of the rigor of uh, what you got with Bertrand Russell, or uh, G.E. Moore or Wittgenstein and uh, that tradition, you know, that carries on in America and England, but not so much um, on the continent. So is it possible for you? I mean, I don't want to stick you with an impossible question. Yeah. But is it possible to like give listeners who might not, who, you know, who might have heard of Wittgenstein or have kind of a, a passing understanding yeah. of what he was about? Can you summarize? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of a, the, the classically they divide his philosophy into sort of early and late phases. Um, but there's a kind of unity to it. It was uh, the idea, which is also really was an idea on the continent as well, was that uh, language could be a kind of lens through which to understand sort of traditional questions of metaphysics, epistemology. Questions about knowledge could be reframed, say, as questions about how does the word know function in language? How do we use it? What are the situations in which... Uh, we would call someone and say that's that's not knowledge or that you you've spoken inappropriately. It sort of a, becomes a semantic question rather than 
the ones that Aristotle or Plato would have asked purely metaphysically, what is knowledge as a sort of concept or an idea? Um, so it was just a way of talking about language as a way of approaching the whole subject. And I think later Wittgenstein became suspicious of the idea that any grand theories could be built out of uh, our concepts of language because our language is too muddled in a sense. It's too fragmented. It develops in a sort of organic way. The metaphor he uses like the way a city develops. If you look at London, it's a mess or LA is a mess, you know, but a, a beautiful mess, but it's not organized. It's not rigid. It's not sort of gridded and laid out in, a, in an organized way. So it's very hard to derive grand metaphysical conclusions from that fragmentation. So I think that's the sort of later Wittgenstein is a kind of quietism, solving problems piecemeal. He sometimes thought of as a pragmatist, like there's no grand answers to these questions. There's answers within a context. Yeah. That sort of thing. Okay. So, and, and that wasn't a, a terrific summary, but no, I haven't thought about summarizing this in a while. So it's yeah. Better than okay. I could do. So uh, Wittgenstein, uh, the, the David Foster Wallace was a big fan. Like he's got right, some resonance right. in uh, certain literary circles. Like, did you find yourself reading Wallace and responding to his love of Wittgenstein or however that might have embedded itself in his fiction? Um, I think f first I would say the first fiction writer I read that connected to Wittgenstein was David Markson, who was also important for uh, Wallace. He, uh, he has a book called Wittgenstein's Mistress. Top oh, of my top uh, of my. Uh, I see. Yes. Okay. There we go. So um, he's... You know, he has a book that is sort of modeled on Wittgenstein's first great work, which was the Tractatus. And it's sort of logically structured point by point in sort of like sentence-like uh, almost aphorisms that sort of accumulate and sort of frame this philosophical theory. Markson takes the format and uses it to articulate almost a, a, a woman's sort of growing insanity. So it's a kind of interesting way of using Wittgenstein to show that some of these, in a way, it connects with what I was saying, that following language far enough ends up maybe destabilizing the self in a certain way that you end up going down these rabbit holes. And it's a very interesting book. And Wallace, of course, uh, wrote an essay, I think, or a review in the review of contemporary fiction precisely on Markson's book. And no, how he called it like the, 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 great the high point, the high watermark of, of experimental, experimental fiction. fiction. You're right. You're yeah. right. That's right. Um, so, yeah, that was very important to me. Wallace himself, it's funny, my... My connection with his work, I, I, for whatever reason, it's sort of spotty. Like I've read sort of bits and pieces of of his books. The Broom of the System, I take it, is the one you mean for with as far as Wittgenstein. And that's an interesting. I mean, Wittgenstein was very interested in the idea of the joke as being a way of doing philosophy, uh, because jokes set up sort of surprising expectations that often play on sort of. Um, the weirdness of our concepts so that something would be surprising we wouldn't expect or uh, a diversion or a sort of swerve. So that's part of the boom of the system, I think. And I, I did find that um, interesting, but I did come to it after Marx and who was, uh, was just a sort of staggering kind of work that I had not, I had not seen. I mean, those are the kinds of works that got me into writing fiction. Let's put it that way. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. You were, you were like, yeah. looking at it and saying, Hey, this is something that I'm responding to more deeply than maybe the colder, <laughs> Exactly. Um, philosophical texts. And exactly. I mean, modern academia, you know, you're expected to write these abstracted journal articles, meaning they've got 200 words at the top where all your points are sort of systematically laid out. It's just very beige, you know, very dreary kind of, it can be sort of depressing that there's no linguistic style. 
style is almost the enemy of the field in some ways. Clarity, because there's the literature so large. Right. Oh, I was going to say, is there a necessity to that? Because academia, yeah. I don't think this is exclusive to yeah. philosophy. Yeah, I yeah. think academia, uh, you know, in the sciences, it's certainly this way. Uh, mathematics, you know, whatever it is. Yes. There is kind of this dryness. It's almost like a, uh, it's, it's like a thing. It's like it's the aesthetic itself of academic speak. It, 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 yes. And is it maybe style as an intrusion of the personality into the work that they feel like is at odds with um, an objectivity? objectivity. Yeah. It, right. I, I you know I, I don't want to completely yeah. Um, I still have affinities with with the field and I'm interested in it. I I do think one of the reasons is for that style is that there's just not enough time to read really sort of dense personal sort of uh, stuff with a lot of style that would need a lot of rereading and style sort of gets in the way of quick uptake. So in in a way, someone's got to be able to run through, you know, a dozen journal articles in a weekend. It it can't be something where just the facts, you got it. That's the best way of putting it. You put it better than I did. Um, There's not enough time. So I understand the necessity for the style in a way. If everyone wrote like Wittgenstein, there just wouldn't be a field that that was productive at all. And there are a lot of critics of Wittgenstein precisely for his obscurantism, etc. But I do think there are good motivations for using a style that... um, you know, draws attention to itself in some way. I mean, this is an interesting question just in literature itself. Like, there are certain schools of fiction, that minimalist fiction and certain realist fiction that wants to say, style, we should look straight through language to the content or the subject matter, whereas there are a whole other type of writer who says, no, language should be lavish, it should be glorious in its own right, it's okay. So there's a sort of crossover there. I think academia in general favors a sort of transparency of language, but I find that sort of... Um, slightly boring and sort of it it it, it steals some of the, the romance of the field too. well and so also I say, yeah. I, when you think about the the scientists and mm-hmm. the philosophers who um you know emerge from the pack and uh distinguish themselves they almost always have an artistic bent yes you know like i, I think of einstein it's just like the uh the exemplar like this is a guy who um you know, is uh, was quoted on T-shirts talking about creativity. Still is. Yes. You know, I think bumper stickers. Like, yes. he, he certainly wasn't the model of the cold, uh, austere scientific mind. Yes. That, like left the uh, creative aspects or the more whatever you want to call them artistic aspects of of living uh, to the side. So, I mean, it seems like maybe... Yeah, exactly. And he read very widely outside of strictly scientific literature. Uh, you know, he was very interested in philosophy, for instance. Even, and I think uh, there's a... I mean, this is this is not exactly a revolutionary point. The field at this point is much, much larger. And so it has... There, there are certain constraints on that. Clarity is one. There's just so much material to, to be read. And... Uh, it's more it's a more professionalized industrialized kind of process i mean obviously there's some i i, I don't know i i don't want to i don't necessarily know exactly what the parallel is but there's clearly a parallel with creative writing itself right uh it has become sort of a it used to be a more romantic kind of individual thing and now it's very much sort of industrialized with workshops and this sort of churning out of huge numbers and some of the sexiness i think it's just not there for me i mean i i never attended a workshop and that i did take a few as an undergraduate and it again it just seemed everything i didn't want literature to be was so <laughs> it was uh I, you know sitting around in a group sort of patting each other on the back and sort of being supportive i mean literature is supposed to be a sort of wild violent thing for me i mean the, those my heroes are my philosophy the philosophers i like are sort of 
a little bit, you know, boundary breaking sort of renegades in some way. And, I, and the workshop, of course, is the opposite of, of that spirit. So. Well, you know, I was reading what you were talking about uh, with your publisher at $2 Radio, the interview that you guys conducted. And, and you were saying something to the, like your your the, the impetus for this book and wanting to sit down to write it for you in a lot of ways cuts against many of the popular um mantras of the fiction writer you said i don't want to write this book to make people feel less alone (laughs) (laughs) which which is anti that's not that's not wallace that's the opposite of wallace yeah uh why is that i i I, there's something about i mean look that part there's something basically contrarian about me and that's not even that's not necessarily a virtue that's just a feature of my personality that when i hear yeah when i hear too many people sort of agreeing about something and it starts to become a kind of a piety, I just react very badly yeah, to this, yeah. just in life in general. Not i got to confess, I fall into that sometimes. Uh, oh, okay, so uh, th- that's that's a personality thing. I don't have a justification for it. I, I could easily build one on a sort of intellectual grounds why we have to sort of upend all these various ideas, but sometimes I feel like that's not necessarily the most honest. It springs from something deeper than that, that, <laughs> I, I, that a group think is just very troubling to me. when Gr- I see Groups it. in general seem to irk you. That, I, I think that's fair. You could conclude from reading um, the few things I've written that, yes. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, but it is an interesting idea. Like, uh, I feel shackled by groups, I guess. And I'm constantly trying to break free of that into a space where nothing is certain. That sort of Keatsian negative capability where we live in a state of doubt. Let's not start becoming certain of certain mantras like fiction is about being less alone or it's about telling the truth about life. These these. I, I do react very uh, negatively to that. It just it just fills me with a certain kind of despair that we've been reduced to these kind of you know these slogans and we're all going to chant them and we're all going to write whether philosophy or fiction. Yeah. I feel the same thing about philosophy. They have their own pieties and that just dragged on me. And you you can't really be an academic philosopher and reject those pieties. That's part of the reason I'm no longer one. Is yeah. that. In fiction writing, the interesting thing is you can kind of be a renegade outside of that workshop system, right? I'm sort of, me and many other writers are proof of that. There aren't many academic philosophers who can survive and still be taken seriously by the system and reject those sorts of right. pieties about clarity I mentioned and, and, and many others. So there you have it. Yeah, but it, I just, I like this idea of writing a book that when people read it, it makes them feel more alone and more alienated. <laughs> well, you know, just the, the you know, I was just thinking the other day, I was reading, uh, you know, there's the famous quote from Kafka, right? That a, in other words, it contextualizes a little bit. It's really not so radical what I'm saying. I mean, Kafka has that famous line of a book should be uh, the axe to the frozen sea inside us, right? But just before, earlier in that same letter, he, he writes things that are sort of very, very feel I feel very comfortable with, um, which are, you know, a book should uh, wound and stab us, he says. A book should affect us like a disaster, like a suicide, and then one choice bit that connects, like being banished to the forest far away from everyone. And so that's, I feel more cut home with thinking of literature as this way of shaking us up, in other words, and there's, uh, of um, disrupting whatever we've become sort of familiar with, etc. I, I thrive in that kind of state. So Kafka, Artaud, that that kind of Delillo, 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 right? Defamiliarize the familiar. I, I, exactly. I mean, he's one of my um, big sort of totems as far as writers go. Um, particularly um, Underworld and some of the later stuff is is uh, uh, 
for exactly those reasons that yeah. sort of, you know, I mean, DeLillo himself sort of stands apart from the literary world in a lot of ways. He's sort of in and out of it. And I think he has a certain mystique partly because he, he, you know, the whole thing lists are a form of cultural hysteria and that kind of, you know, he, he, he's he, got a powerful mind yeah, and, and he, he's a very astute observer. Exactly. And he, I think he bridles against some of these same kind of accretions that over time, these kind of pieties where we all start, singing the same song kind of so well, I, i'm thinking yeah. of one in particular i was reading an interview with him years ago and he was talking about how writers are always and i'm paraphrasing mm -hmm. so i'm probably getting this all backwards but i think he was talking about how writers are often bitching about being marginalized and about being um on the outside looking in when it comes to culture and his argument was sort of uh you know cutting against that he's like we should be on the periphery that's where writers belong we don't belong in the middle of everything yes i i think it's very interesting i mean that makes me think also of um, something I heard from Philip Roth. To a similar effect, he said, writers uh, sort of thrive on the margins. It's like in cultures where uh, there are these sort of central problems and writing is, is a problem in some ways. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's dangerous in some way. People don't like what you have to say. Those are the situations writers thrive in probably best. But in conditions like today, where writers are really ignored, right? It's it's more of that. Uh, but that should be a sort of a certain kind of freedom. I mean, I think for Roth and and for for Delillo, yeah, the idea is to offer a kind of uh, another way into understanding the sort of the way the whole culture is sort of stabilized and flattened. I mean, Western culture. It's like even when you look at the election now. I was just thinking the other day that uh, you know there are countries in which if a certain group in the election loses and you're of a certain other group, you, you know, they could come for you in your home. You know, like it, there are countries in Africa and in Asia, et cetera, where so much turns on the election that it is a terrifying kind of experience. I mean, my family's from Sri Lanka, for instance, and they had this grand civil war recently. And who got into office had everything to do with what was going to happen to the country. Democratically. Like, yeah, exa exactly. Exactly. And I fear when I'm, in this country, we look at Trump and stuff, and it's really we see it almost more as a joke because, in a way, it's harder for the more sort of the the ones of us who aren't really living the tough lives in this country, you know, being without education or being without any money at all. It's a little bit more like what's going to change about my life should this one person win or the other person? I'm not I'm not totally sure what I'll do differently or what, how what I'll have to rethink if one candidate or another wins. And, and that's just very different from worlds where, that are much more unstable. So I think in a world that's very stable, like a country like America, it's interesting for the writer to take the position of a DeLillo and say, of course we're not listened to, and of course we're sort of marginal, uh, but what we can offer is a way of rethinking the society that we're in in some way, and maybe that can offer a way of destabilizing what is already so sort of bland and solid in a way that sort of boring like yeah working against the inertia it, it, the inertia exactly i wasn't putting it very well that's that's much better there, there's a kind of inertia in countries like this and i think when things get unstable and this is the other half of that people yearn for that inertia i mean in a way it's a huge privilege that we can not be terrified by what happens in an election though we're concerned and worried but there are countries where everything hangs on it um, well and there's also i mean i don't want to get too i don't want to get too deeply into like magical thinking yeah uh, but the predictive quality of a writer like Dula, you know delillo i think of white noise as an example yes um you know the situation where uh you know white noise which i think was published in 1982 or something mm -hmm. like that uh 
read in the 80s reads one way. Read post 9-11 reads almost like a um, uh, like an analysis. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. You know, it's got like this weird uh, prescience and or like hindsight depending on your perspective and a very um, – you know, again, very astutely observed. I, I mean, do you know much about the? I don't myself about the reception of of white noise in its own moment in the eighties. What was it? Well, well, it I, won the National Book Award, so it couldn't have been that bad. Yeah. <laughs> I think it won. No, it won a big no, award. No, not that it was. What was the feeling about? It? Was the feeling that this was uh, portending some some dark stuff? Or if we know, right? Or uh, or maybe I've got, I've got to believe that there were critics who who said as much. Okay, I, I'm I'm guessing. Yeah. I, I think some people probably felt like it was, okay. uh, but who knows? You know, I don't know if they were thinking like, oh, you know, there's going to be a terrorist attack on the homeland or whatever, you know? Right. Um, it's interesting because we, we can take some of these things in, in moments of, of relative security and peace. I wonder how some of these books are received as uh, instructive, but yet not like pointing to like dire near near term sort of consequences and we can sort of cherish it and we can give it awards even but i wonder now after the fact it takes on a kind of gravity i think even the very people who would have given those those awards would would be shocked by too or, or yes. as rocked as any of the rest of us who, who maybe didn't i wasn't there for the original reception of that book well you were what two or i was i was four yeah you were reading white noise I wasn't at really, age four. yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's talk about your youth you're from california i'm, I'm from california i'm from uh, redlands california actually okay and what was that like growing up uh that's desert that is desert uh and it's now recently sort of become infamous which is strange i was in in Redlands for these recent, um, you know, goings on the, the the terrorist attacks there, which is very very in strange. San Bernardino. In San Bernardino, right? And apparently the people lived in Redlands, and so when I was there, the, the police were all over the place. In certain streets, you couldn't go. But I mean, that's another story. But the Redlands I grew up in, I I don't remember anything uh, of that sort. Um, are your parents are from are Sri Lankan. My parents are Sri Lankan, and right? As are you. Like, how did how did you wind up in Redlands, they, California? Uh, they they came to America, I think in. They're both uh, doctors. They're both psychiatrists, actually. Um, they came to America, I think, in 1970 to New York City, actually. So I was born in New York. Um, but within a few years, uh, they they spent about a decade in California. But I was born towards the end of their period there, the 70s, actually, the really brutal, uh, the part that everyone's really nostalgic for lately, it seems, like <laughs> City on Fire and all these books. Yeah. I, that's there in New York, kind of. So uh, it's pretty funny. But... Uh, uh, it's funny how we sort of like fetishize uh, chaos, and, yeah, you know, and, exactly. or whatever. It was so much realer back then. Exactly. So my parents were like, "Yeah, we left because it wasn't the prettiest place to raise children." This is nineteen seventies New York. It was a gritty, gritty place, and so now I sort of I'm often complaining to them, like, you know, why did you take us out to this desert town in in Redlands? You know, because it's sort of culturally starved. The whole strip mall culture. I'm like, we were in New York. I mean, weren't we already where we had everything? <laughs> we had everything. They're like, you know, you, New York of today is not the New York we left. It was, it was a place you did not feel comfortable with children, you know, um, sort of the city itself. So, uh, anyway, yeah, they left quite early on to California. Um, and I think they had a friend. This is how people end up in towns like Redlands. You don't just, <laughs> you're not, you're not driven there by, you know, 
uh, you know, any kind of promise or dream. They had a, a, bro- a brochure from <laughs> yeah. the, the Chamber of yeah. Commerce. Yeah, I mean, it, it, Redlands doesn't pull people the way L.A. or New York does, right? It, my parents had a friend who happened to live in Redlands, and they were like, oh, they could help you sort of set up there and start a practice in psychiatry, et cetera. So for those, I think that a lot of things evolve that way, totally blindly. I often talk to my parents about they're like, you know, they, they look at me, I'm often talking about, you know, I have these ambitions to be this writer or this intellectual. They're like, we sort of just, li- we just let life unfold in front of us. And so they... But see, this is a, I, th- I, find, I feel like this is a uh, common thread in the lives of a lot of people who have success. And uh, I think about it because I'm like, am I doing it wrong? Am I, am I holding too tightly to my uh, ideals or my dreams? And then you read about people who are like, well, this is where the job was. So we were in uh, Wichita and then we moved to uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. And now we're in New York City. And it's like, oh, like maybe... Uh, Maybe these people have it figured out. It's really funny. I mean, they they think it's – my dad is always laughing at me about my dreams. You know, he thinks it's so <laughs> precious, your dreams. He said, I never had any dreams, Mark. Uh, you know, I took on the challenges that were in front of me and let one thing lead to another. And my dad is actually a – has had a very great career, so it's especially funny. He's saying, I didn't think about it ahead of time, though. I, I just lived it, and it was much more na- – he also – he knows about me is that I'm uh, can be a somewhat sort of tortured, kind of tormented kind of character. I'm not necessarily the most cheery all the time, or the most happy about You've this. Come to the right place. <laughs> so, and he's a psychiatrist, remember? So yeah. he, he's like, yeah, of course you're tormented because you have these ideas of what you must be and what you must become. What's uh, and those are always going to torment you if if you allow yourself to sort of develop in a more free kind of way. You might find yourself you're not quite so. Um, you know, you know, quite so unhappy about things, et cetera. But I mean, nowadays I, I finally got a book published, right? So uh, I'm sort of telling him, no, maybe my way was okay too. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, you're right. Suck it, Dad. Yeah, it, it, I was an insufferable person while getting this book written, right? I kept talking about what I will one day do, right? But now, yeah, exactly. Suck it. <laughs> Just like dropping it on his desk. Exactly. It's definitely a mic drop. So uh, were you an only child? I have a brother, actually, an older brother. Okay. So, and you have two parents who are psychiatrists. That's right. What does that mean for a child? I were they were you their project? I I think, I, I mean, I think yeah, people find it very curious. And also, I went into philosophy of all things, which is so psychiatry is like the most intellectual way of being a doctor. Um, I think, uh, I think it 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 helped them be more free in, in letting me pursue things I wanted to pursue in a way to, to, to say friends of theirs who are also Sri Lankan and the way they raise their kids in a more, um, in some ways, a more stereotypically South Asian way, more rigidly. Uh, uh, my parents were like when they heard I wanted to do in high school, say I was starting to drift towards philosophy rather than the sort of de rigueur kinds of things. Uh, South Asians typically do right being a doctor or, right, or uh, right. these kinds of plans that they almost just spout off because it's just the way you know if you come from a, a culture where that makes sense um, well but I also think like yeah. I mean there, there's also something to the uh, first generation uh, you know immigrant like my because I remember my dad um, you know I guess he was second generation but it was like be a doctor be right. a doctor right like, that's just kind of what it, exactly is, is, like everything else was like if it doesn't work out then you can think about other things but why would you plan on not doing this that, yeah. that i think there was a, my dad did not become a doctor <laughs> <by the way. laughs> that's what he was told yeah he, he barfs at the sight of blood <laughs> that, so they, uh, it would have been a bad psychiatry idea. then maybe yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly so um what kind of kid were you growing up you, you were always kind of brainy 
Uh, I, I don't know. I, I do know that I, you know, I hear like, you know, when I hear about writers, uh, uh, who are my age roughly, and I hear about, you know, their stories, of their childhood being big readers and this sort of thing. I, I didn't do very much reading. Um, I think I was considered brainy, but in a kind of sort of impetuous, chaotic kind of way. Like I, I had good like test scores, but I was not a very, um, I was a very disruptive <laughs> kind of child in class. I got a lot of the sort of, uh, you know, I, I I was a problem in some ways. I was I, I did I had the right grades, but not the right attitude. Or Would you have like been that. diagnosed as like ADD or something? <laughs> I I wonder. I mean, my parents were right there. They 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 they, they, yeah. they were in the position to like be like this guy, give him the riddle, and I yeah, mean, they, give this kid some drugs. Yeah, exactly, for God's sake. Exactly. I mean, but I I think this is this is what I mean. I guess my parents didn't panic by the way that I seemed to be a bit defiant or a bit like unwilling to sort of go along with, you know, my, my parents would have all these teacher conferences where the, the teacher would call them even quite early on in first grade, third grade, all the way through, really all the way through high school where it's like, you know, your son, he, you know, he gets good marks on the test, et cetera, but he's very disruptive to the other students. He's doesn't, he doesn't listen. He doesn't follow directions, et cetera. And I, I think my, uh, in those meetings, my parents were like, yes, yes, these are, these are, we, we need to address these things. But I think at home they were just like, no, that's what smart people do. They, they pursue their own. So I benefited, I think from having them as a psychiatrist, they were looser about certain things saying that's how people find identities for themselves. Well, I just read an article in the paper the, you know, the other day where it was saying, if you want to raise a creative child, make the fewest amount of rules children who come from households where there's tons of rules tend not to be creative about finding solutions for themselves interesting i mean it makes sense no no no, it it does but i mean i don't think i have any rules (laughs) i'm like now i'm like i'm like you know checking myself as a parent i'm like do i have rules i don't want to have rules exactly but i mean that's at one point that certainly when i was raised that was considered i think against the grain like you were supposed rules were good at that time right so so my parents were kind of weird about things and that they were much more I mean I'm thinking about this now they they were definitely more tolerant of uh of a kind of um you know not walking in lockstep in a certain way. So maybe there there are benefits to uh to exactly to this no rules. I mean when you look at the whole picture I don't know but <laughs> well but it's like you know and it's an interesting thing too because as a parent you want you teach you you do want to teach your kids to respect their elders. You don't want to raise a rude kid. Right. But at the same time you don't want to ingrain in your kid that they should have some sort of like total reverence for authority right you know my daughter is like such a rule follower uh-huh. speaking of rules yeah, like yeah, school, yeah i mean it's just her nature yeah and uh my wife and i are often like did you get in trouble or something like dude you know yeah it's okay. yeah it's okay yeah. you know and she's just naturally she's naturally that's just a very good kid and yeah. she wants to please and all that kind of stuff maybe yeah. I mean, maybe that's coming from us but like yeah. really I mean, I was not that way. Yeah, right. At least as I got older. And, um, you know, I say that now. And, like, when she's 15 and, like, taking the car out, I'm going to be like, <laughs> yeah. shit. Yeah. What happened to my sweet yeah, child? Exactly, yeah. So it's it's a balancing act. You no, know, but you, the, you I mean, it must to... be a pleasure to have a child like that where you don't have to have conferences with the parent, uh, teachers all the time. And it's not a... I mean, so far, yeah. I mean, it's, she's, it's nice to know she's usually, like, not the one, like, writing, like, you know, on the walls it, or whatever. Right, right. But there's still time. <laughs> <laughs> We can regress. Um, so, okay. So you, you were in Redlands all the way through high school? All, all the way through high school, actually. I mean, um, I, we, yeah, we went elementary, junior high. I went to a – weirdly, I mean, Redlands, there were – I think for middle school or, or, yeah, junior high as well. Uh, we went to a religious school in uh, 
Uh, yeah, what, was, what was your religious uh, background? Did you I mean, have one? My, my parents, I mean, technically, I suppose, were Buddhists, but I don't know how we didn't go to temple a lot and do a lot of those things. But I think that's still spiritually the way my, my parents are. My mother, I think, is, is more... They meditate? My mother does, but in a roundabout way. I think that was through um, more through yoga and other things in the, in the way that a, a, a white Western woman might meditate. You know, like not, not, not in the way you were thinking. I love this Lululemon outfit. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so funny. I laugh at her about that. Like, you've come to meditation like, you know, people we would normally, you know, a little bit funny. But uh, uh, I think it's more... Uh, uh, I don't think they're not like sort of active with religion, but I do think just spiritually that's their that's their feeling towards. It's almost, that. But it's a, I always say Buddhism is more like psychology. That's I a, mean, there is a mythology part of it, and there is like you know the, the the statues and the little gods, but like that stuff you just slide to the side. The actual practices, it's just psychology. That's exactly how they feel. Exactly, and and uh, I think again in raising us. The, me and my brother there was there was that element of again uh, i think a, a a certain freedom and a certain sense that uh, uh, a, there was a certain psychological sophistication that comes i think even from buddhism which is again a kind of uh, even at that early stage a kind of sense of that rules can be stifling that we have to let go of that a little bit and a little bit more. I think there's, it gives you a certain kind of flexibility because precisely because there's not a lot of dogma, uh, not a Any lot. Any kind that, of fixed idea is enough. It, it's, a, it's a hindrance. It, that exactly right. The, the whole idea is this kind of, uh, in a way, like almost like Keats, a kind of negative capability, a willingness to sort of just let life evolve, these sorts of things. So I think they took that attitude towards us, even though they don't necessarily, uh, you know, do the, all the, the ritualistic part of the the religion yeah well it sounds like you have smart parents <laughs> they are smart but we we didn't grow up in a kind of house of culture either you know the capital c kind of culture which again i find in new york a lot of writers i know are like they talk about having all these uh you know wonderful books on their shelves that they were constantly talking to their parents about the, the class, you know moby dick and this and that i'm like no my as i told you my dad's a more practical guy so he took life as it sort of evolved and and uh, you know he's well educated and he has that background, but they're they're not sort of uh, you know culture people. Like they don't spend their time reading fiction, uh, spend a lot of time listening to music, etc. That wasn't my background, so maybe that's partly why I wasn't a huge reader. I mean, they are very intelligent, they're very schooled, and they have this psychological sophistication, as I say. But uh, it wasn't like one of those nerdy kinds of households yeah so, did you for did, better or worse did you uh like rebel in high school i mean you were a good student i was uh <laughs> i mean i was a pretty good student i wasn't a bad student considering what i should have been doing like i could have been a much better student but i was still reasonably good but yeah i mean i was you know by junior high i was already you know starting to experiment with drugs and those i was kinds gonna say you do some drugs yeah i mean i think that's not that unusual but uh, I did start, I think, I switched out of that religious school, which is a Christian religious school, not, not a Buddhist school. It happened to be a good school in the area, so that's how you, sometimes you end up. And as soon as, like, like what you would expect, as soon as I went to public school, I started doing drugs. <laughs> so <laughs> just with, like, parents' fear about, like, public school. It's like, Other whatever. side of the track. It, it was, it's so funny. So I did sort of live that, a little bit of the cliche, I suppose. Uh, and how did that. your parents react to that? I think it... Uh, I mean, it was pretty tame. You weren't going. You weren't, I was you weren't not. No, or... no, no, no. Exactly. So, I mean, we're just talking marijuana, maybe you know, drinking here and there. And I, I mean, not that I have not tried meth. I did actually at that time, but it, I was not. I was going to say you're from Redlands. I, it's like a yeah, red I, yeah, exactly. exactly. 
<laughs> but I wasn't a fiend, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm still saving that for the future. But uh, yeah, I did. I, that's I mean, how I, you're going to write book two. That, that, that's <laughs> right. Much faster too. <laughs> um, I, there, there. I was sort of disaffected in the way a suburban kid is, I, in a, almost a classical way. You know, yeah, like. Yeah. Where what is this all about? When you look at like suburbia and the Californian suburbia, the strip malls that we all know about, which are real, you know, the, is Redlands the Inland Empire? Or no? It is. It is the Inland. Just Empire. Just the name, the Inland Empire. It's just <laughs> right. It's 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 ludicrous in many ways. I mean, it's and 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 the access to culture. I mean, everything was some uh, prefab kind of culture is what you got. Whether it's the music was just, you know, generic music stores and uh, it was Blockbuster Video and it was, you know, Barnes & Noble. That was the best you were going to do. It had none of the kind of texture and not, none of the encouragement towards a kind of deeper engagement with culture. So I, I think I was a very sort of partly tormented by suburban. That's totally normal. I'm from, I'm from the suburbs. Same thing. Isn't that, isn't that when normal? Did, when, did you, and when did you discover your hunger? Oh, wait, hang on. We've got neighbors building something. God damn it. <laughs> Hang on one second. Okay. All right, so we resolved that. Did you hear that was diplomacy in action right there? <laughs> these guys uh these guys were nice. So what were we talking about? Oh yeah, just like suburban angst and ennui. Yeah. And when did you because it's like you don't quite know what you're missing if you're living in a place without uh culture. You know That's what I'm true. saying? That's so a good point. Where where what was the the point at which you I guess when you left home and went to college and suddenly you were like, Oh my god. I think so maybe a little bit early, but you're but that's a really interesting point that there's sort of this undifferentiated kind of angst when you're young in the in the suburbs because you don't actually know concretely what's what's missed. But you have some vague sense that this couldn't be it. This this isn't it. So I think in high school really I started dipping into just sort of little bits of philosophy that one might expect, you know, Nietzsche. The, the, angsty, kind of like the, the angsty, yeah, you got pretentious, it. Totally like, generic. Yeah. I mean, I, it, nothing interesting in a sense. But nonetheless, I mean, in a way, even going through those generic steps of sort of self-realization, et cetera, that there's more. I mean, they, they do something. There is some kind of liberation that occurs, even if it's a kind of lockstep liberation with every other you know, suburban kid who goes to college and tries to do other things. But I think in high school, I started read, dipping into philosophy, Nietzsche, and also some Descartes, some slightly weirder stuff. And I think that sort of really philosophy came before literature for me, which is, I think is unusual. And then I started getting into fiction and other things like that. But what, even what was uh, it? What, so what got you to philosophy? Your parents have books like that around the house? I, what I remember is that my brother gave me this book, uh, a collection of uh, so you have an older brother. Oh, my older brother. In Sorry, the, yes, the classic yeah. way that an older brother is like, read this, you, listen to this. You know what? I think he was in his first year uh, of college when he gave he gave me a book of philosophy, like a collection. Exactly, it was like he obviously saw that I was not a happy sort of uh, student and, a, and just a happy person at that stage. So he's like, why don't you check this out? And those things naturally are like... like hey, read some Nietzsche. He's miserable. Yeah. <laughs> but you know the comfort that brings, right? In a way, right? The, this the commiseration. Syphilis this guy's even sadder than you. <laughs> did, did he die of syphilis? <laughs> yeah, you yeah. did, right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Freud, some of these thinkers I started getting into. So I, in a way, I guess I owe that first, first introduction to my brother basically being in college and looking back and saying... You might benefit from some of this stuff, you know, like right. it might it might open your mind to certain things. So that's sort of thanks, bro. Uh, yeah, uh, but it it was definitely that comfort that one seeks in those early. It was definitely feeling less alone. All the things I'm criticizing now are like were totally essential. You want to feel like oh right, uh, you know, 
I, all and, now that's you, now, and now you've come full circle. Yeah, now I'm like, I hate the people that I was, exactly. Like, Please yeah. humiliate me, alienate me, isolate me, make me feel banished but, uh, to the forest. But, but I'm, I'm aware that that's a stance you can only take after, like, you had that moment of communion and literature. That's certainly, like, when I say, when I, you know, that interview that I gave there was obviously a little bit pugnacious, right? Because... Uh, Again, it's it got con- my attention. <laughs> it connects. I mean, that's my natural contrarian side. But I do recognize that that's a way of doing literature. I get that we also need books that do some of, serve some of those other functions. But sometimes I feel like we're not getting enough of the books that live up to the the Kafka quote. You know, that yeah. kind of idea of a book as a wound, a way of sort of damaging you in a productive way. I, I think. Well, there's like yeah. lately what's been obsessing me in my writing is mm-hmm. like precision mm-hmm. and depth of thought. Um, you know, and I say that with like modesty because you know, one, one can only go as deep as one can go. I'm not saying that I can like plumb the, the, the final depths or anything, but um, taking your taking one's time, like even if it takes way longer than it seems to take other people, like spending the time to really think through what you're saying. And, you know, you don't want to make a book overwrought. Right. You don't want to sit there and noodle with it until you've kind of like turned it into a shit pile. Right. But at the same time, uh, I, I, I guess I find that if you sit there and you put your mind to it, you take interesting turns and the, the work gets a lot richer than it otherwise would be. And I, I guess I'm just trying to like find that line. No, exactly. I, I think a lot of writing time is just that kind of sitting in front of a computer time where you're, it's not obviously productive. And, and sometimes you're too quick to reach for – uh, someone else's book off the shelf or, you know. Well, the impulse to be done. Yeah, exactly. That, 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 or the compulsion, just like, I want yeah. it done, I want it done, I want it yeah. done. And it's like, you got, I, I have that bad, and I need to sort of like stifle it and say, slow down. Like, no. let's, get it, let's get it as right as we can get it. I, I mean, I felt that very, very strongly because I was sort of, I left philosophy and I jumped into these other things in journalism down in New York I moved to. it, And I was sort of like, I need to write this book. And I, it has to be sort of, I'm like late, I felt like, because I had spent these 10 years in a kind of, uh, in graduate school in a very weird, ambivalent this sort of way, sort of free floating. But now I'm like, I was like 31 or something. And I'm thinking... Again, my dreams, right? <laughs> so Your I'm like, I, I, I still don't have a book. I speak really like confidently and arrogantly that I'm, you know, this 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 person. But where is it? Where are the goods? Yeah. And so I felt. Did that, you tell family members that you're writing a novel? Did I did. You, so I told every, every holiday. It's like, how's the novel? Exactly. Going? I told coworkers, <laughs> every possible person. So I was insufferable in some ways. Like, oh, this guy, oh, he can just do whatever he wants. He he says, we'll see. Yeah, so, but you know, the thing is, though, and like this is, it works two ways. Yeah. I found because. Um, when you when you kind of like put your flag in the ground or whatever, and you say I'm a writer, I'm writing a novel yes. before you've actually materialized said novel, it puts you on the hook. Yes, like it gives real it gives you real like uh, emotional pressure. Like once your family knows you're doing it, like you almost have to no, do it. Exactly, I think of it in the same way. Uh, I I quit smoking. Similar thing. You tell other people you quit smoking. So when they see you with a cigarette, you're just a fool. They're you're like just a weakling. Weak. You're so yeah, exa- weak. exactly. It really, really helped me to. I know of people who like they hide their manuscript until it's sold or something because they'd be too embarrassed to fail, you know. But the pressure to fail actually, I find really motivating. Another thing people say is like, you know, they like to have no expectations when they write and this sort of thing. But I sort of feel I always have a hard time writing unless I feel like. I'm I'm going for it all here. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to dig out whatever is of interest or value and interest in me, rather than 
you know, just churn out something um, just be, to be done, as you say. Exactly. I, I have to feel like here's the best you have. Right. And I don't feel there's multiple tiers in literature. I mean, there, you know, people sometimes think of the classics and the great writers somehow different from the rest of us. I'm kind of like, look, you should write a book that you're not shy to put up on the shelf next to the big boys or whatever, you know, the, 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 the one, the, your heroes. I, I don't, I feel a lot of writers I know are like, no, my, I could never be as good as Hemingway or Proust or something. I'm kind of like, I didn't want to finish, submit this book until I felt like this is my very, very, very best. And so that also drew out the process. So, I mean, there's a pain that you want to be done. And yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, kudos to you for having the, uh, the prudence to, to wait or yeah, to keep working. Right. So, okay. And then you mentioned the New York Times. Uh, you worked there for a spell? Yeah, I, I, I'd still work there as a, as a freelance researcher now, a.k.a. fact checker, right? So for the uh, Times Magazine, for okay. both of the magazines, um, T as well, their style magazine. So you got that after you finished at Cambridge? Well, yeah, but, yeah. I finished my degree there. Or I, maybe I wasn't quite finished. I hadn't taken my uh, Viva, my oral exam. But I came back to New York knowing that I just couldn't be an academic. And that was a big decision. You know, my parents were certainly, you know, they were like, what? You just spent a decade of your life and now you're saying, I'm just going to jump ship. So that was a big, big deal for a couple of years. But yeah, I came back to New, New York. I decided, I decided, well, what, what else could you do? As, as you were saying at the beginning, what do you do with a philosophy degree? Well, journalism is one of those areas where you have so many guys, like essentially misfits, people who didn't know exactly what to do with their lives, and they find a way to do it there. And I, New York Times is just like that. I mean, so one of the people who used to run the culture section was telling me, yeah, I drove a cab for 10 years, and I stumbled into journalism, and now I'm a big shot doing that. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a funny field. Yeah. Uh, so I, I came there. I did a couple of internships. I started at the Parish Review, actually. Um uh, to sort of find a way in, right? It's not that easy. Uh, and I was 31, I think. So I was like the oldest intern ever there. And uh, uh, then I did the Harper's internship after that. So still wasting more time, apparently. And then finally, this job came open at the Times as a assistant in the op-ed department, the opinion section. So I took that, did that for about four years, and then then became working in at, in the New York Times building. That's when I yeah. That's when I wrote the book, working in op-ed. And every morning, 5 a.m. to about 8, 8, 8 a.m., the book every day for f three, four years. And that was it. And a lot of caffeine? A lot of caffeine and a lot uh, the angst we talked about just got worse and worse. I, was, I think I was a really vitriolic colleague, frankly. <laughs> I feel bad looking back. Did your colleagues know you were working on a novel? They did because, of course, I had to announce, you know. Uh, you know yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, they did, and they, they would check in. But over time, right, as you go on, you become, I think this is a common feeling for many artists, you, as you go on, especially when you try to put it on the market and try to get agents, and that, there's a growing kind of hostility and bitterness, I think, sort of seeps in because you realize this process is going on forever, and you're totally unsure whether it will come to anything, right? Yeah. And uh, I started to have a real worries because I'm getting older. I was like you still haven't delivered that big thing that, you know, yeah, yeah. you kept, you know, telling yourself I'm capable of, you know, this sort of thing. So it was uh, retrospectively, that was a very difficult time in my life because I was, the pressure was just going through the roof. So, I mean, Eric Obanoff at, at $2 radio basically saved me by <laughs> giving me a book deal. Suddenly, like Thanks, I'm talking Eric. to you now, I'm a much nicer guy now, right now, Brad, than, <laughs> than what you would have seen then. So I've sort of apologized to some of my colleagues for just the, the angstiness of it. I, I was a good worker, but I was definitely not, you know. It's like you're carrying a weight. 
I think a lot of artists must must feel this way. So after the book sold, it was like magic. Yep. Suddenly everything leveled out. Okay, life is okay. I'm not I'm as not mad. crazy. I'm not crazy. Yeah, I have some talent. Exactly. The big part of it is I'm not from an MFA. I just said to myself, I think I'll write a novel now. And so a lot of people naturally would have been like, oh, all right, good luck, because there are in New York, right? Novel writing is like in Hollywood, script writing or something. Everyone's got one in a drawer somewhere. So yeah. it, it's it's totally this this uh, sort of an unachievable, almost a silly thing to, to take on. So there was this growing feeling like, are you not going to be able to pull off like this thing? So yeah, there's a lot of relief. When so how you, did you do it? You, you submitted a $2 yourself? I did. I mean, before that though, let, let, let's talk about the failure first. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about the failure. <laughs> okay, I don't, I don't want to... I mean, look, first I submitted it to a bunch of agents right for about um it seems a, like you should be able to get an agent like that cambridge you you would that, you, this is this is a funny thing i thought writer. i had all these connections that were like all sort of new york times what's what's the deal i thought it would materialize overnight but apparently something and i did get some leads to so some very very uh uh, uh in, interesting influential agents but the manuscript itself what the manuscript was telling them was that, no, I don't think this is for me. So it's hard to sell. That's, what it, that's the code. The, exactly. The, the manuscript was people were just sort of shrugging their shoulders. They didn't know what to tell me. They almost didn't have advice. They never said, I would change this character or I would switch this scene. They're like, you're doing something. They, they said something. One agent said something that was nice. Uh, you've clearly written the book you wanted to. Meaning, like, I, I don't have any advice to change it. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it is, it seems very complete. It seems like you meant to do this this way. It doesn't seem like a mistake, but it also seems like something I do not want to deal with. You know, so or the agent just like has a file of like uh, rejection letter templates. And hey, that's that, that also one, that one's called. It seems you wrote the book you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's that's the truer answer. I'm uh, okay. But, You're you right. Know, but it, like, like no. you have to like. I, I do think about things from their perspective every yeah. once in a while, and it's like. It, do, it does have to get wearying to have it, to write those letters. I mean, even as my time at the Times, we had to reject lots of people. I was actually the one who controlled the slush inbox for op-ed. You can imagine how many oh pieces we get, about four or 500 or three, four, 400 a day around. Yeah. And I'm the one reviewing them. For years, I did that. I mean, this is... It's a brutal job in that you way. You get a right? lot of like crackpots. To mostly crackpots. Yeah. And then we just, some we get in foreign languages. I don't even understand why these have been sent. We get a lot of, a lot of silliness. And, and uh, I was sending out rejection letters every day of, of just the sort. You've written the piece you meant to write. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, I, it's funny how unaware I am that I actually thought that she might have meant that for me. You're right. She of might course, have. She might have, but. We'll give her the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. But I mean, I think there are just only so many ways to put it at a certain point. Yeah, absolutely. You, you are working through like a dozen templates and you put a little spin and you're proud of your spins like you made to tack on an extra line that sort of personalizes but right. but you're right so i spent 15 months the short story is tr sending this manuscript out i was rejected you know the usual uh, dozens and dozens of times couldn't get an agent to really i got a couple who wanted revisions so i did do those revisions one of them told me yeah i still don't want to i don't want to see this anymore <laughs> And the other one Next is my day. current agent. So that one was interested. But well, who did you land with? Uh, Jennifer Lyons, actually, okay. um, who does a, uh, quite a few sort of idiosyncratic authors. So it sort of makes sense that uh, um, 
that and she seemed to get things where other agents had questions like what does this mean it only takes one exactly it takes one but the funny thing is at the end of the day i actually signed with her after eric took the book because i said i got impatient right at a certain point i'm like you know it takes three months before they get back to you, these big sessions so i started sending it out to various small presses and so uh it, uh I heard back from Eric from that before I heard from my agent. So, well, well that's a bit. You know, you landed in a great spot, and I yeah. think it, it, two dollars in, in indie that the agents and that the big houses know about. A, a, exactly, and Eric, his comments on the book. You know, he wrote me a letter about how he saw the book and what kind of revisions, and they were just, you know, just an order of magnitude uh, sharper than anyone else. He's a tremendous reader of of difficult books. Like I, you know, that's their brand. That's their brand. And and he knows how to get within them to not lose patience, which is what happens, right? You're like, yeah, he, he was able to sort of live in the book. It was clear from his notes. I was like, how is this guy picking up on these things? I mean, it was, it was bizarre to me. That was the first time I was shocked. me, Eric. (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) If only he wasn't married. (laughs) So, um, square wave. Yeah. One of its uh, primary concerns is uh, the national security state. That's right. Yeah, living in a living in a militarized. I mean, and like I, I guess I'm. I mean, it's a, it's an election year. Yeah, so sort of germane. But I mean, what we think about the American context. I think you're also dealing with a 17th century Sri Lankan imperial yeah. context. So you have and, that as a motif throughout the book. But yeah. in both instances. Yeah. There's a national security yeah. state. And it, there's a, I think the focus, the unifying element there is the empire, focusing on empire. So this is a, a, that was a, a, an empire that was just getting started, the British Empire. Uh, this is 1700s. And now we're at the sort of end of a certain kind of American empire. You know, there seems to be fraying, and we obviously have major uh, rivals elsewhere in the world. So it was a consideration of empire, the beginning, right, because the British Empire l- led on to, I mean, we're just one more piece of that empire in a way where the, the progeny of that and then to see it through to the near future where it seems to be fraying and we have this kind of political fracture that doesn't seem that our uh, we're, we're, we don't seem to have any real solution for how to even go about adjudicating all the chaos you know we just have those screaming voices at this point and uh, so it was a sort of uh, looking at that arc the, the the violence in the beginning and and the potential violence in the end, you know, empires do do have to fall at some point. So um, that, sometimes I, they fall with a whimper. Sometimes it, they fall with a bang. It, that's exactly right. I, I mean, I think oftentimes it's it's this kind of uh, just sort of they sort of seep away. They're they're their life force, and I think that. And there's an economic force too that goes. I feel like they they um, they overextend themselves. It, 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 absolutely, and I think. Uh, Listen to me talking about empire. <laughs> this is no, how empires fail. No, no, but but there is the overextension. There's the hubris and pride of sort of planting your flag in as many places. Right. Like America does that in its own way. It's not quite the way the British did it, right? But because you can't annex straight out in the way you could then. Uh, but essentially, we set up bases. We do this thing. We we structure economies around the world. I mean, not just America, but the, America's sort of instruments, the IMF and World Bank, et cetera. So there's the overextension, and then there's a then there is also rival economies now, you know, where it is and your clout, you realize, was totally dictated by how many products you were moving, basically. And now China's moving more products. It's a it's a problem. You know? Moving it, units. Yeah, exactly. It, it is sort of you think your clout has anything to do with your rhetoric about democracy, et cetera. But really, the, the, the whole the only reason you're listened to is because of that economic and thereby that military clout. Right. So you realize how thin your 
how thin your control ever was. Even in your heyday, all your subservient sort of subjects are only subservient because of, not because of your ideology, really, but money because talk. yeah, funny talk. So that's I, depressing. It's, talk. it's really depressing. But <laughs> but you notice it as soon as empires start to fray. Like right. America's economic clout is not it's it's not the sole leader as it was in you know fifty years ago or something. And already we're not, our opinions are frequently challenged around the world. We're not to- taken totally seriously in the same way. And, and I think it's a good thing. Yeah. I don't think like uh, hegemony is a, is a healthy thing for th- this country or for the world. Absolutely. And I think that uh, it's healthy to have your ideas challenged. It's healthy to have uh, a richer uh, dialogue between cultures and, uh, you know, yes. the, the more the better. Like, as if we have yeah. some sort of... Uh, you know, as if we have some sort of patent on good ideas or something. No, right. But w- w- what's depressing about it is that, and this is the sort of Marxian thought underneath, is the right part about Marx, is that the economics totally controls who we listen to and who, who gets taken seriously. So only in an era where we get a little bit more economic diversity, like now we have powers in Asia and uh, American cloud is not quite what it was, that that conversation can even begin. So, yeah, it, it, it's sad that it takes economics – for us to really listen, but if it does, so be it. Now, well, now the, we're listening. You well, know. right, and the interconnectedness, you right? Know, like That's the true. more, the more uh, explicit that becomes, you know, in economies and just in, you know, in countries at large, the more citizens realize, oh, you know, we live in a very interconnected world. You're like, right. Our well-being. When climate change is one of those issues that Precisely. is def- definitely getting people to think that way, that yeah. we can keep fighting it out and we're all going to die this way. You yeah. know, like this is this is not going to go end well for any of us. So somehow we have to find a way to cooperate. Yeah, so I totally agree. Well, no, it's like, I mean, it, it, you can start to sound a little bit hokey, but it's like, uh, if you're not okay, I'm not okay. Right. If animals are suffering, I'm suffering. Right. If uh, the rivers are polluted, I'm polluted. You know, it's like it. We're all one. We're all connected. Exactly. And it is funny that conditions have been such up until relatively recently where that that idea didn't seem natural to people. That it felt like you could pillage the environment and these really what now strikes as absurd. But it's funny, the blinkers of history sort of that in your moment, it seems to, it would have seemed totally natural to like American settlers to just tear the place up. Basically, this is our bounty and, yeah. and we're special. This is, you know, manifest destiny and all that. So it's interesting. It's it is terrific though that for all sorts of historical reasons we're starting to have to listen mainly because we realize how dire it's it's becoming right so what just popped into my head is uh one of my favorite books is journey to the end of the night uh by louis ferdinand yes i only recently read this book strangely enough so it's great yeah and uh, no but it makes me you know he was a complicated guy first of all like personally but like as an as a writer and particularly in um journey and into in death to uh, death on the installment plan he was offering at least partially a critique of the industrial age right and the timing of that book right when like industrialization if you're shifting from agrarian to industrial oh interesting right literally i guess what it's what it's making me think is that people who are making art as the world was making that turn right you know that's an and we're noticing like oh hey you know the the sky's black <laughs> no, exactly you know it's interesting about that book in particular uh, journey to the end of the night that there's a good great take on America in that book right on New yeah. York in a way it's like a update oh, of De Tocqueville yeah Detroit. Detroit right I've only just recently read it so it's, uh, it's very fresh in my mind and, and it's colonialism a, in it, Africa I mean that, that book it, right what I often say about books book, that I love the most is that they have everything in them they 
Exactly. It's like you put it down, you're like, that book said everything. That's how I felt when I read that book. It's, I was exactly. Like, um, it, it's terrific. And it, that is definitely addressing some of the same kinds of themes that sort of uh, are, are my obsession are, are in that book. And I, that, he, he operates in a very satirical vein. Now, yeah. I don't think anyone who reads my book will think of satire at all. It uh, can be, you know, very heavy, et cetera. But it, I felt it's very much a connection with Celine, though he, he likes to laugh about it. I don't know what exactly I like dark, to do about dark it. Dark <laughs> Very dark. Very dark. <laughs> well, listen, man. It's been such a pleasure having you over. It's Congratula- been amazing. Congratulations on the book. Uh, I wish Thanks you well so on whatever you're cooking up next. Thank you. And uh, this you has know, been great. Enjoy the rest of your uh, tour. Great. Thank you, Brad. Okay, Mark De Silva. His novel is called Square Wave. Out there now from Two Dollar Radio. You can find Mark online at mark-de-silva.com. He's also on Twitter, where his handle. Is at Mark Silva one Follow him. Tweet at him. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget that this podcast has its own app. It's free. The Other People app, it's free. Get it on your phone. Get it on your device. It's free. It's an app. You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. They'll be there waiting for you when you get the app. New episodes automatically download to the app or upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. And then if you want to get at the full archives, if you want access to all 400 and something episodes, uh, at your fingertips anywhere you go, just sign up for premium right there within the app. It's a little subscription service. You can sign up right there within the app. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. That's no bullshit. 75 cents a month. Access to everything. Great way to support the show. Please do that. I would appreciate it. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Complain. I'll be at AWP. Uh, I'm going to have an, uh, an event on Friday night, April 1st. I'm going to be at Literary Deathmatch at the uh, Ace Hotel Theater. I'll be interviewing Melissa Broder, author of So Sad Today, friend of mine, writing partner of mine. I don't know what we're going to talk about yet. we got to figure that out. Saturday night, I'm going to be at the, uh, what, Improv Olympic West Theater for an event sponsored by Curbside Splendor about the intersection of literature and comedy, a panel, free admission. Go to curbsidesplendor.com for more information. For the Literary Deathmatch event, go to literarydeathmatch.com, the L.A. event on April 1st at Ace Hotel Theater. Get your tickets now. They're selling out. It's Super Tuesday. I didn't talk about politics. I don't know. It's just, you know, it's happening. It's a fucking shit show. Donald Trump. What a fucking shit show. What an embarrassment. That's all I can say. Please remember that John Milton died of gout and that F. Scott Fitzgerald in the year or two before his death was described by John O'Hara as, quote, a prematurely little old man haunting bookshops unrecognized thanks to mark de silver for being here uh go get square wave thanks to two dollar radio check them out they've got a great list and uh, of course thanks to you guys for listening i appreciate it i will be back next week caffeinated rattled edgy murmuring sweaty agitated overtired not eating stressed ground down by life hanging on by my fingernails trying I feel like there's something sing-songy about that. There's something uh, musical about my delivery there. Did you hear that? (laughs) 